0: all on all the last day of our school year I am sorry I will miss you but don't worry we're not going anywhere Um, it is Easter season and I want to make sure you all know we've got lots of good things going on around here I hope you are plugging in The first thing I want to make sure you're doing um, are, are daily podcasts. If you've not listened to the clergy podcasts that we offer, I really do think they're good, and I can say that because I don't do most of them. And so when I listen to them, I just, I really find them to be great. They're always under 10 minutes. You can listen anytime, streaming from our website. You can listen, if you listen to podcasts, you can pull this up on any of the podcast apps that you use on your phone or your computer. They're super easy. We have over a thousand a day are listening to these um, prayers and it's really great. And so if you would like to take advantage of that and need help, then let me know or let Bov know. We're happy to show you how to do it. Um, But our website actually has step-by-step instructions of how you can subscribe and listen to these podcasts on your own. And so they're very helpful, nice visuals with pictures promise. It's easy. Um, And so we'd love for you to take advantage of that. A few special things happening. I want you to know this coming Sunday, so just four days away, we will be having our one-year anniversary screening of Michael the Musical. And so if you were with us a year ago at SMU, you know we had 1,500 people at SMU watching this musical. It was so so fun. I can't even tell you it was so fun. Um, And so people have been asking, when can I see it again? Or if they couldn't come, when can I see it for the first time? So we're putting a big old giant screen up in the church and everyone's going to watch it. It's at four o'clock is the screening. And then we're going to be doing burgers out on the lawn on Douglas for everyone who's there to just eat together. And so know that you can come see it at four, eat about five o'clock, everyone's welcome. We hope this is convenient time for children as well. So if you've got kids or grandkids or neighbors or whatever, bring them. Because I will tell you, there weren't a lot of kids actually at SMU that night, but the ones who were there just loved it. And so young kids, it's totally entertaining and it's only an hour. So bring anyone you want. It's a good time. That's this coming Sunday. And then in a few weeks, we have our Mother's Day reception. We started doing that post-COVID. And so on Mother's Day, which this year is May 14th, We will be having a reception between the two morning services at the 10 o'clock hour, and we're gonna be doing mimosas and all kinds of snacks. And so whether you are a mother, you probably, if you're not biologically a mother, you are mothering someone. And so come get a mimosa for your troubles um, and enjoy it, or bring your mom, that would be great too. So lots of good things going on, so stay plugged in. And this class ends our study of David in particular, And we'll talk a little bit about what we'll be doing next year and a suggested reading over the summer if you'd like to do that. So let's get a prayer and then we'll kick in because we have a lot to cover. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together this year, for guiding us as we study about your kingdom period, about your servant David and the way that he shaped our understanding, not only of who a person can be, but also of how we understand. Jesus himself. May we continue from this study to be transformed on our own paths of discipleship as we extend your love to all those we meet. Be with those we hold in the silence of our hearts and minds, especially those who need your healing touch today. May they be uplifted by your presence and by our love. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so today we are going, essentially, we've done... First Kings 1 Kings 1-11, through 11, with Solomon in particular, now we're going to go from 1 Kings 12 all the way through 2 Kings, and just hit the highlights, give you the whole shape of what happens as the kingdoms devolve, and then go into exile. So we've got six sections today, so just hang with me. And I will tell you right now, given the scope and the size of the stuff we're covering, I don't really anticipate reading straight from the Bible today, because I just, we don't have time. Um, If there's something that really catches your fancy and you've got a question, let me know. We can read a few sections, Um, but it would be decently easy for you to follow along in the macro sense, just as we kind of flip through. You may even want to make some notes in your own Bible, but this is one of those days where if you do not take physical notes, you might wish to, Um, because it will help you if you wanted to go off and read a little bit on your own, over the next week or two. And so if you need a pen, raise your hand. I'm sure somebody's got an extra in a purse or in a pew or something like that. But do take a few because I think this will help. So first, first and second Kings is one whole story. It's separated into two sections in our Bibles, but really it's meant to be one whole story. And it's divided essentially into five main sections. The very first of those five main sections is what we have done in this class. First Kings chapters one through 11. That is essentially Solomon's rule. We're gonna do a little recap on that. And then we're going to go into the other four main sections today. And so just track this with me. If you're taking notes, write this down. It will help you as you're looking through the Bible. Section one is what we've already done. First Kings one through 11. 1 Kings 1 through 11. Section 2 is 1 Kings 12 through 16. 1 Kings 12 through 16. Section 3. 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 8. So again, 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 8. Section 4. 2 Kings 9 through 17. 2 Kings 9 through 17. And then section 5 is 2 Kings to the end. 2 Kings 18 through 25. 2 Kings 18 through 25. Now, I'll ask Buff to put this in an email to you as we close it out so that you can cross-check this with your own notes if you wanted to go back and kind of look at things yourself. Those are going to be essentially the five sections that we discussed today with a tiny little sixth section, because the last paragraph of 2 Kings is this weird little epilogue, and it makes very little sense. But I do want to note that it's separate from those first five big main sections. So there really is kind of a little tiny sixth section of today's study, but really we're gonna talk about the five big main sections. So quick recap of the first main section, 1 Kings 1 through 11. We know that David unified the tribes and that all happened in 2 Samuel. When we shift to 1 Kings in that first main section, David is on his deathbed. And he and Solomon talk about what Solomon's going to do after he dies. And there's this lovely moment of following God's covenant and being faithful to Yahweh and good to the people. And you think, man, this is so nice. We're gonna end well. And then they pivot to making plans to assassinate all of their political enemies. Remember all that? (laughs) And so it's kind of a both and, right? Lovely father-son moment and then kill everybody. And so essentially, 1 Kings 1 through 11 is the way that Solomon rules after David's death. Now, Solomon is imperfect. He starts off strong. He asks for wisdom. And we think, oh, good start. And then God says, oh, just because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to get you all the stuff. Solomon's like, yeah, thanks, God. Good. Then, He consolidates power through his political assassinations. He marries hundreds of women, many of whom are royals from foreign nations in order to create political alliances. He then adopts many of their own gods, including foreign worship right there in Jerusalem. He accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a massive army. He institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. And all of these things go against the structure of what a good Jew is supposed to be that we see back in Deuteronomy, in particular, Deuteronomy chapter 17. So Solomon is set up as kind of good, but mostly bad. And all of the first 11 chapters lead to the kingdoms being very frustrated with Solomon. He has stacked more and more on top of the backs of the general people and they are unhappy but Solomon is still Solomon. Solomon has all the power. He's accumulated it all. And so right at the end of Solomon's life, we see that essentially there are 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel are starting to grumble against Solomon. And that takes us through the first main section. That's all the stuff that we have done over the last few weeks. Any questions about that before we pivot into the things we have not studied yet in our, in our RBS? Nothing? Yes, ma'am. And how in the world have we always thought about a great, wise Solomon? You know, is that what you it? It's a good question. So, the um, question is, why do we speak of Solomon as good and wise? I would say, A, lack of biblical literacy. That's one. Um, I mean, well, and I don't mean you. I mean... Broadly speaking, you know, how do I want to say this? Humans, human imperfection creates in people like me who talk about the Bible and teach about the Bible. We overemphasize certain things and underemphasize other things, which is one of the reasons why I do try, I don't ever achieve this, but I try in this study to really just do or deal with or teach what is there. I try not to go too off script about scripture itself. Now, I obviously go off script about like modern stuff and politics or the way we live, that sort of stuff, but I try not to take what is in scripture too far out of context. So that's why one of the things I try to do all the time is talk about context. What else is going on in the world? Um, What are some of the motivations that might draw people to do or not do certain things? And so it really is meant to be literacy here so that we just know what's there. That being said then, so A, it might be just biblical literacy. It could also though be intentional interpretation to be helpful. If we focus too much on the negative, it's not that helpful to us in our life. So I do think that in a potentially good way, well-intentioned way, when people teach Solomon, they do focus on what Solomon did well because it is instructive to us about how we can live and what we can do and how we can do well, well as well. And so I don't know that people are intentionally ignoring the negative as much as they are just simply trying to teach the positive. Now, that being said, we need to be sophisticated enough to accept that everybody is imperfect. I think that we have, especially in our culture today, here I go on a tangent, especially in our culture today, we have stopped allowing people to be imperfect. Anytime someone does anything we don't like, they're dead to us. You know, and that's the cancel culture kind of stuff that we're in right now. Now, yes, some people can lose authority. We've talked about that in here, where I would, I would argue for people like me, ordained people leading churches, you can absolutely lose that authority. But that doesn't mean that you, the person, are lost. It might mean you can't do that job or hold that role anymore. But as a person, there is always the opportunity to repent and return and to heal and to repair and all of that stuff. We have to allow that, not because we want it or we like it, but because Jesus says so. And Jesus is inconvenient. And we gotta do that Jesus stuff. Sorry, that's what it means to be Christian. And so I do think that we need to be sophisticated enough to hold Solomon up as profoundly imperfect. To understand in the grand scheme of the social shift that it really is Solomon who gets the ball rolling downhill. But it doesn't mean that it's 100% bad. Solomon did some good stuff. He just didn't do as much good stuff as perhaps we wish he did. That's it. So as I noted I think maybe two weeks ago, Solomon's pivot happens as he begins to expand his political alliances. It starts to go downhill, like it crests. Solomon does do, Solomon does build the temple. I mean, let's not take that away from him. But as he consolidates and builds his authority and power and wealth, he just gets farther and farther and farther away from God. So let's go to the second section. First Kings 12 through 16. Those chapters are all about Israel splitting into the northern and the southern kingdoms. So that second section is about the split. And so the way this split happens is when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam acts just like his father. Rehoboam just takes the mantle from Solomon, puts the crown on his head, and he wants to even expand Solomon's authority and power. So Rehoboam tries to increase taxes, to pay for more building projects, and expands the slave labor that Solomon had started. Now at this point in time, Rehoboam is not Solomon. And so Rehoboam faces a lot of critique and a lot of resistance. In particular, the 10 tribes of the North are led by Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, not from the line of David or Solomon, rallies the 10 tribes that will ultimately become the northern kingdom of Israel, and they secede from the unified kingdom of Israel. So remember, Israel is a person, is a people, is a unified kingdom, and is the northern split kingdom. Okay, so Israel can be lots of different things depending on where we are in time. The unified kingdom of Israel splits, and the northern kingdom retains the name Israel. That northern kingdom is made up of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 10 tribes are the 10 that are not Judah and Benjamin. So you don't really need to remember the the 10 that are. I mean, for good measure, it's Reuben, Simeon, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, Ephraim, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, and Gad. Okay, those are the 10 tribes of the Northern Kingdom. But it's much easier to say, not Judah and Benjamin. Okay, (laughs) Judah and Benjamin are the two tribes of the Southern Kingdom. And so the Southern Kingdom becomes the kingdom of Judah. Judah is much bigger than Benjamin. And so they just claim the name. So now the United Kingdom of Israel has divided Northern Kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes, Southern Kingdom of Judah, two tribes. After the Southern Kingdom splits from the Northern Kingdom, the book then shifts and it's simply a whole lot of all the kings of the North and the South and it goes back and forth and back and forth. So we hear about the kings in the north and the kings in the south and back and forth and back and forth. I want to note, just for our own good, because in the big arc story, we know that God made a promise with Abraham. That promise was reiterated with Moses and then with David. And that promise is about bringing a messianic king through the line of David that would then bring about God's kingdom for all nations. That's the big promise. David's royal line does not stay with the northern kingdom. It stays with the southern kingdom. Rehoboam, king of the south, is Solomon's son. Jeroboam becomes king of the north, (laughs) not of David's royal line. we clear on that? So very quickly at the very end of this second section... Jeroboam, who becomes king in the north, tries to create identity that will rival what is going on in the south. Jerusalem stays in the southern kingdom. Sorry, I should note that. So, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, maintains the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem. And what's in Jerusalem? The temple. So, Jeroboam who becomes king of the north. I know it's super helpful when their names are almost identical. (laughs) Jeroboam, king of the north, wants to figure out how to create some identity like Jerusalem. And so he anchors two new temples in Bethel and Dan, two other cities in the northern kingdom. And he builds these two temples to rival the temple of Jerusalem. And he puts a golden calf in each of those two temples to remind the people of Yahweh. Now, we know the golden calf did not work out the first time. (laughs) And so you might say to yourself, what the heck? Why would Jeroboam put golden calves of all things in the two new temples that he's building to try to rival Solomon's temple? Think about that question and what's probably the best answer? The best answer is that the story of the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai may not have actually existed yet. And when they went back to write those stories, why would they have picked a golden calf at Sinai? Because Jeroboam, put golden calves in his temple in the Northern Kingdom. And the Southern Kingdom, they're the ones that wrote those stories because they're the ones that went to exile in Babylon and then wrote all the stuff that came before the exile. Bam! (laughs) I know, I saw your mind blown. Don't worry about that. It's not a big deal. Because I think the story of the golden calf at Sinai is still true, but it was absolutely meant to prefigure the wrong thing Jeroboam did in the northern <laughs> kingdom. Now, what did Aaron build down at the foot of Mount Sinai? Something. Something happened. And the people did something wrong, Moses got mad. And then had the people repent. Okay, all of that is a true story. Was it really melt down all their jewelry, make a golden calf? I don't know. Could have been, sure. But a calf is not perhaps the most automatic way to represent Yahweh. And had this already happened with Jeroboam, and they were going back and writing the story of when the people did the big wrong thing, By making that a golden calf, like what Jeroboam did, it sure does draw a direct line between the Southern Kingdom doing stuff right and the Northern Kingdom doing stuff wrong. And history is written by the victors and the Southern Kingdom wrote the history. And so they subtly, maybe not so subtly, claim the authority over the wrong Jews up in the Northern Kingdom. And by the way, I've mentioned this before, but the northern kingdom's capital is ultimately put in a city that you've heard of, Samaria. And so the Samaritans are the ones that Jesus points to as being better than the Jewish religious leaders of Jerusalem in his day because they get the simplicity of God's message to care and love for our neighbors. And if they have gone through all of this effort to point out how wrong the Northern Kingdom Jews are from the Southern Kingdom Jews, now you get why people would have been so angry with the way that Jesus told those stories of people like the Good Samaritans. All right, questions about that before we get to section three. Yes? Sir. Is the golden still there today? Is the golden calf still there today? No. We do not have much left of these other temples. Um, certainly none of the valuable things. That has all vanished. Any other questions? Geographically, how much land did the southern kingdom have in the northern kingdom they split right? Yeah, good question. So, what was the difference in the size of? the land for the Southern and the Northern Kingdoms. Um, the Southern Kingdom was definitely smaller. The Northern Kingdom, if you can, if you imagine Israel today, it's tall and skinny. It's about 400-ish, 450 miles top to bottom. And it's about 100 to 120 miles east to west. So it's thin and tall. It is, I like to say, it's like a, Israel's like a trifle. Um, You've got the green of Galilee up top. You've got sort of the arid area of the middle that really resembles Tuscany. If you've ever been to Israel, you've probably seen much of the same kinds of trees that you would see in Tuscany. So if you think of Tuscany, you don't see a lot of grass, but it can still grow stuff. So you see a lot of trees, definitely crops, but not grass It's not quite that lush and green. The grass and the green lush stuff you see up in the north. The middle is a bit more arid, but it can still grow things, which is why the middle is where you get all the olives, because olive trees grow great in kind of that middle arid temperature instead of something that's super wet. Then in the southern third of Israel today is the desert. Um, No one really lives there. And so that desert bit was really not part of the ancient unified kingdom of Israel. And so essentially what you have is, it's only what is today kind of the middle of the country was the southern kingdom. And that was smaller than the northern part of the country. If you think of where Jerusalem is, Jerusalem, and basically what was around Jerusalem is all the southern kingdom was. And then the northern kingdom had probably, I don't know for sure, but I would say at least 50% more land if not 100% more land. I mean, it could have been twice as big as Southern Kingdom. I don't know for sure, but it's definitely the Northern Kingdom was bigger. And the Northern Kingdom had more people, 10 tribes versus two tribes. Even though Judah was a massive tribe by number, you still add up all the 10 tribes of the North, and it still was way more people in the Northern Kingdom than the Southern Kingdom. Any other questions? All right. Section three. Section three is a big section. It goes from 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings 8. This section just does what I said. It goes all the way through all the kings of both the southern and the northern kingdoms. Each of those kingdoms had about 20 kings. So we're talking about 40 kings total. 20 north, 20 in the south. Essentially what happens in this third middle section, the biggest section, is an evaluation of each king. So the writer kind of goes through and tells just a little bit, sometimes a little more than a little, about every one of these kings. And the kings are evaluated on essentially three bits of criteria. The first is, did they worship Yahweh alone? Did they rid Israel of idolatry? And did they remain faithful to the covenant that God had made, both Abrahamic and Davidic covenants? And based on that criteria, of the 20 kings in the north, zero of them were good. (laughs) Yep, are you surprised? Um, Because remember the southern kingdom Jews wrote it. So of the 20 kings in the south, Eight were good. So really what we have here is eight of the 40 kings, and the eight were all in the southern kingdom, were the only good kings. So we're talking less than a quarter of the kings of this period were considered good by the standard of worshiping Yahweh, ridding of idols, and maintaining the faithfulness to the covenant. The other big purpose of this middle section, and just kind of evaluating all of these kings is the introduction of the idea of a prophet. This middle section is where we get the rise of prophets. Prophets are not fortune tellers. Instead, what prophets do is they speak God's word and remind the people of what God really wants. They remind the people of the covenant promises to cut out idolatry, to seek justice, they remind Israel to be a light to the nations through the commandments, and they remind Israel of the need to repent when they do wrong and to follow God alone. All the prophets do some version of that. And so if you want to know a little bit more about the prophets, you can read some of the prophetic books. I also just began last Sunday a five-week study on the prophets on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock here at the chapel. And so if you wanted to come to the next four weeks, they essentially stand alone each of the weeks. We did Isaiah last week, and then we'll do Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel. I'm sorry, Isaiah first, then Jeremiah, then Ezekiel, then Daniel, and then the minor prophets. All of the stuff I'm doing on Sunday comes from the prophetic books. But here in the middle of the big story of Kings, we get the introduction of a number of important prophets that you have definitely heard of. The most prominent prophets in this section are prophets of the Northern Kingdom, and we begin with Elijah. So on to the scene comes Elijah, and Elijah is a wild man living out in the desert, eating bugs. <laughs> Who's that sound like? John the Baptist. That's right. So when the gospel writers wrote about John the Baptist, they John the Baptist could have totally been wild man out in the desert eating bugs. Absolutely. But when they told his story, they absolutely told his story exactly like Elijah is described. People wanted, the gospel writers I should say, wanted the people reading the gospels or hearing them read to them to think, oh my God, John's just like Elijah. Because what did Elijah do? Elijah promised that God was coming with a messianic king that would bring God's kingdom to all the nations. And so, of course the gospel writers wanted to get everyone to recall Elijah when they heard the story of John the Baptist because John the Baptist introduced Jesus. And the gospel writers believed Jesus to be that messianic king to bring about God's kingdom on earth. And so this is not an accident. And we get the story of Elijah right here in this middle third section of the big story of Kings. Now, Elijah's arch nemesis was King Ahab. And King Ahab had a Canaanite wife named Jezebel. So y'all know this. So Ahab and Jezebel had brought into the northern kingdom of Israel all of the Canaanite worship. In particular, the Canaanite god, the biggest god of all the gods of the Canaanites, was named Baal, so B-A-A-L. Baal was the big god to rival Yahweh. Elijah was not happy that Baal was now worshipped, in the northern kingdom because of Ahab and Jezebel's influence. And so Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was better. And so Elijah said, let's sacrifice two bulls, you pick, we're going to cut up all the bulls, build altars out in the middle of nowhere, it was really Mount Carmel, which you can go to now, it's near Haifa. We're going to have these two altars next to each other out in the middle. You guys pray to Baal to bring fire from heaven to burn up the bull sacrifice. And then little old me by myself will pray to Yahweh to bring fire and burn up this bull as a sacrifice. And let's see who wins. And so the prophets of Baal, they pray and they chant and they do all the stuff and nothing happens. And Elijah just raises his arms and speaks to God and fire comes down from heaven, lights the pyre on fire, burns the bowl as an offering. And Elijah turns to the people and says, you've been wishy-washy back and forth between Yahweh and Baal, now you need to pick. Who are you are gonna pick? And then the people go, yay, Yahweh. And then yeah. they, <clears throat> and then under Elijah's direction, All of the Baal prophets are taken down to the shore of the ocean and killed, of course. And so it's those kinds of stories. And Elijah is just this dramatic, do you hear that? Is this dramatic person who has so much attention brought to him and does a number of other things. Elijah has seven specific miracles that are recorded within this section. In addition, Elijah is the one who, at the end of his life, he's the other one who doesn't die. Because what happens to Elijah? He's taken into heaven by a chariot of fire. And so Elijah goes out, and he removes his mantle, physical mantle, like stuff that he wears over his shoulders. And he puts his mantle down, and he has a disciple named Elisha. And Elisha sees Elijah. So, for biblical people, we tend to say Elijah and Elisha because then you really know who we're talking about. That's not exactly how you pronounce his name. Elisha is how you pronounce his name. But for our purposes, just so we're clear, I'm going to say Elisha so that we, we kind of know. So, Elijah takes his mantle off. Elisha's there. And Elijah, you know, this chariot of fire comes out of the sky and swoops down and picks Elijah up. And Elisha uh, takes his mantle physically and puts on Elijah's mantle. Elisha then asks God for a double portion of Elijah's power and authority, and God says yes. And so as the book goes on, Elisha performs 14 miracles. Some of those miracles include things like the healing of Naaman and the raising of a dead boy back to life. Do you hear me? So Jesus is not the only person who raises people back from the dead. Elisha does as well, and so you've got these two big, massive prophets, Elijah and Elisha, Elisha, that fill this middle section. They are Northern Kingdom prophets. All right, questions or thoughts on that? Yes. What makes Elijah bad? What makes Elijah what? Bad, because you said that the seven wasn't it the seven. Kingdom said all the northern Kings. kings. Okay.
1: okay. Yes, sorry. Elijah's a prophet.
0: No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. So Elisha's all the Elijah's good. But Elijah, did he so he did bring his people back to life. Elisha did, yes. I mean, did he really? Or is that just a story? Come on, Betsy. Okay. So the question is, so I'll, the story goes, Elisha brought at least one person back to life, yes. Um, a boy who was sick. And so it very, mm-hmm. Elisha, was that a true resurrection story? So what I'm gonna say is yes, um, whatever. I'm also gonna say, it doesn't matter. Um, so much of the, this kind of stuff is, I don't want you to be, to get lost in did it really happen kind of questions because I think that's a distraction. It's it's a totally legitimate question to ask, but I do want you to ask a question like, did it really happen? Right next to the question, does the answer matter? Maybe sometimes the answer does matter. I think in this instance, I don't know that for me at least, whether Elisha's raising a dead boy for real, makes any real difference. Well, I mean, so Jesus had the power to raise somebody from the dead. But Elisha didn't have the same power as a prophet. Jesus. Okay, so let me just repeat what you said. Jesus had the power to raise people from the dead, but Elisha did not have that power as a prophet. So it's a good observation. And what I would say is that in Jesus' time, Jesus was never, mm, hmm, on. In Jesus's time, the majority of people believed Jesus to be a great prophet. What we understand as ultimately a Christian identity of Jesus as the Son of God, that is almost certainly something constructed in the first century to try and figure Jesus out. It was almost certainly not the way Jesus would have been referred to in his day, with one exception. Son of God had a particular meaning, and it was much more about, like, we are sons and daughters of God than it does when we say Son of God, like capital S, Son, differently. Um, It took a while for disciples of Jesus to flesh out essentially what being God's son meant apart from who we are as children of God. And so the gospels represent some of that evolution, but that kind of evolution wasn't happening literally in Jesus's earthly ministry. And so why that's important is because Jesus was understood as a prophet. And as he began to do things, and stories of him were told. Remember, John the Baptist is told like Elijah, because Elijah set up Jesus. Jesus then, it was necessary for his disciples to understand that not only did he have all the powers of the old prophets, but even more. And so many of the miracles that Jesus performed actually harken back to miracles that prophets performed. And so he's almost checking boxes as he goes. So Elisha raises a boy from the dead who died because he was sick. Jesus does that too, just a girl. And so we have many of these same miracles being performed by Jesus, by many of the great prophets, Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah. I mean, Jesus is kind of doing all of these things all together. Essentially to say, you remember how great they were. I'm doing everything all of them did and more. And so this is as much literary technique as it is historic record. When people wrote the gospels, when people wrote everything in the Bible, they are storytellers, they're not historians. And so they are telling stories in a very particular way that connects with old stories. So when Moses is, when Jesus's story is told, his birth story, do not think that they were not explicitly retelling Moses' birth story. Jesus is the new Moses. When Jesus does, heals, do not think that they were accidentally recalling stories of Jesus' miracles and healings that did not echo the prophets. In every way, they're trying to ring the same bell over and over again. Jesus is the fulfillment of all this stuff. Everything you've been waiting for, Jesus is fulfilling it. And so, I don't want us to get lost in the historic nature of the Gospels because these are stories and these are storytellers. The real truth in the Gospel is that Jesus fulfilled the promise that was made. That's it. All the rest of the details can distract you from what is that core, most impactful truth. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. to get the historical record um instead of just saying well the storyteller wants us to know but you want the historical record of jesus and what he did so that it brings clear that That kind of confuses me when it's just a storyteller telling us what the the people at the time wanted to do okay it's a good it's a good challenge Um, How I just walked through the way that the Gospels fit in the storytelling of the Bible probably sounds pretty good to those of us who already believe in the fundamental truth of this. When we speak with people who do not, it is likely dissatisfying to say, well, they were storytellers and they're telling a story. There is a desire to anchor this in something real and true and historic, which is why it is important that archeologists and scholars have gone back and shown pretty much clear, incontrovertible evidence that Jesus existed. And so he's not a person in history in a story. He was a real person. We can show based on Secular historians, multiple, that Jesus was a real person in the first century, Pilate, a real person in the first century, the structure that we see represented, Caiaphas as the high priest, all real people. Those are all historically accurate people. So then you start to build on top of historic accuracy what Jesus may or may not have been or done. Here's where it gets tricky. There is in the end point, a portion of what we understand is faith only. And that is simply true in any ancient period where we do not have like literal photographic or video evidence of stuff. And so that's kinda most of all human history. And so there is a point at which we decide Did that matter to? does that matter to us now or does that not matter to us now? If we can't verify like a literal news story that a thing did or did not happen, then do we just say no? Like if 100% of it is not historically verifiable, then none of it matters? And I think we would all say no, we, none of us live that way. That's not the best way to live. And so when being challenged by a person who is not yet kind of angering themselves in faith, I think we should acknowledge that Jesus is a real historic person, of course, that there are real historic moments and experiences that happened, but that we can't rely only on historicity. We do have to take it into truth. And so this is what I would then say functionally when it comes to the way that we develop our faith life. Jesus is not, Jesus never, asked his disciples, so Jesus does not ask us to believe in the historicity of miracles. He never says that. Now, other people, Paul and others, kind of set that as a litmus test, but Jesus doesn't. What Jesus asks is that we give ourselves over to loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's what Jesus asks, and so I will often at least in private, and sometimes lean into this publicly, where I say, I am not concerned at all what you believe. Belief for me as a pastor, belief as a church community, that is to me secondary to taking action. So if you're searching for something, because everyone is, I think you'll find purpose and meaning and the definition for your life here through Christ. But don't worry about the belief piece now, because it is not intellectual ascent. Belief, that isn't it. Belief is actually formed most solidly through action. And that is going off and loving your neighbor the way that we say God loves you and the way that we hope you will love yourself. And so you go and do that self-sacrificially Graciously, generously, you give of yourself, which is one of the reasons why I talk so much about money. Because you have to give enough. If you don't give enough, if all you do is tokenism, I am concerned for your own spiritual life. Because you're not actually giving yourself over to God. You're making a donation. I don't want a donation. God doesn't want a donation. God wants you. And God gets us when we give tangibly of the stuff we have. And if we choose not to do that, hey, that's all right, but just know when we choose not to give sacrificially, we are choosing not to commit ourselves fully. And if we choose not to commit ourselves fully, then the belief we have will only ever be shallow. Until we give of our whole selves, the belief that comes from our actions will never actually satisfy the whole that we have that God really wants from us. Any other questions? I don't often preach that. That's a little rough for visitors. But y'all can handle it. Okay. Let's keep going. Section 4. Section 4 is 2 Kings 9 through 17. 2 Kings 9 through 17. And this is essentially... The first road to exile. Unfortunately, even the great Elijah and Elisha can't really get the northern kingdom to repent and return to God. And so there are multiple terrible sections of the story of the northern kingdom that's just horrible, including stories like King Jehu, who follows King Ahab, slaughters Ahab's entire family. And that's just the beginning. Because... Almost every single successive king after Ahab kills the opponents of their predecessors. And so whoever comes king next then kills all of that person's family, and then whoever becomes king next then kills all that person. It's just like one slaughter after another after another. All this leads to the northern kingdom being destroyed by the empire of Assyria. So the very first... I'm gonna say the very first little e exile is when Assyria comes down from the north, which is today kind of like where Iraq is, essentially. They come down from that area. They sack Samaria, the capital, and they take leaders of those tribes into exile into Assyria. Now, pause right there. We're gonna talk about Southern Kingdom in a moment. That, why I say that's the little e kind of air quote exile is because we then have no more information about those tribes. We don't know what happens to them, where they go, they are scattered, essentially. And when you have heard reference to the lost tribes of Israel, this is there. So these 10 tribes of the Northern Kingdom, they are the ones that essentially are kind of lost. Now, are they like legitimately, literally lost? No, but they never really come back together in any meaningful way. They're sort of just gone now from organizational structure of any kind. Now, Assyria does not stop with the Northern Kingdom. They keep going south down toward Jerusalem, but we get a wonderful story of King Hezekiah, who responds to the movement of the Assyrians in the fifth and final section. And so before we leave this fourth section, it's really not, the fourth section's really not that big a deal, Um, but before we leave this fourth section, any questions about the fall of the northern kingdom to the empire of Assyria? All right, so now we go into the final fifth section of Kings, and that is 2 Kings 18 through 25, the rest of it. 2 Kings 18 through 25 pivots completely to the southern kingdom, and this final section tells the story of the southern kingdom, and it begins with Assyria continuing south. Assyria was not only intending to conquer the northern kingdom, they wanted both, but King Hezekiah of the southern kingdom, remember the line of David now, King Hezekiah responds to Assyria's assault by repenting and praying to God. God then spares the southern kingdom from Assyria's assault. So Hezekiah is looking good. Hezekiah is technically one of the eight of the 20 that are good, except Hezekiah is kind of good like Solomon was good. He starts out so strong. He prays and he repents and God saves the southern kingdom. That is great. But then as Assyria goes away... Hezekiah gets a little too clever for himself, and he's looking at the grand political landscape, and east of Assyria is another kingdom, another empire of Babylon. And Hezekiah says, ah, so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so Hezekiah reaches out to the king of Babylon, has the king of Babylon over for dinner, and they create a political alliance so that essentially, Their alliance, I mean think NATO, their alliance is big enough now to essentially deter Assyria from attacking either of them. That's pretty solid for a little over a century but doesn't really work out in the end. We'll get to that in a minute. So Hezekiah, not bad, a decent king. But then Hezekiah is followed by perhaps the worst king of the southern kingdom, Manasseh. Manasseh becomes king after Hezekiah, and he introduces not only the worship of idols in the temple in Jerusalem, like forget, next to, we're not even next to anymore. Now the idols come right on into the temple, and they build all kinds of stuff, and the statues, and the fires, and the sacrifices, including the introduction of child sacrifices, right? So Manasseh's like, you think the others are bad, I'm gonna do it all the way. And so they begin to kill children for these non-Yahweh idols in the temple in Jerusalem. So Manasseh, not one of the eight that are good. But then Manasseh is followed by King Josiah. And Josiah is one of the good ones. Josiah is seeing all this stuff happen, but he comes across a lost scroll of the Torah in the temple whatever. So, you know, Josiah, he finds the scroll and he reads the scroll and he falls to his knees and he weeps at God's grace and love for all of the people in Israel. And he repents and he says, God is real and true and we should all turn back to Yahweh. And so he cleanses the temple. He gets rid of all the idols. He does all the good stuff. Josiah is a good one. But as the story goes on, Josiah, Hezekiah, and a few of the other good ones are simply not enough good to save the southern kingdom from themselves. They're just too far gone. And so essentially, the southern kingdom gets to the point where geopolitically, Babylon has now conquered Assyria. So remember, they were afraid of Assyria. Babylon instead grows and overwhelms Assyria. And Babylon wants more. And so that's when Babylon comes down through what was the former Northern kingdom and they ultimately attack and sack and destroy their former allies, the kingdom of the South. Now in this little section, both before and during Babylon's attack, we are introduced to a few other big name prophets. And these are Southern kingdom prophets, including people like Micah, and Jonah, and of course, Isaiah. And so these prophets are pre-exilic. So Elijah, Elisha, Micah, Jonah, and first Isaiah. If you were with me on Sunday, you know there are at least two if not three Isaiahs, Um, but at least the first part of Isaiah. These are all pre-exilic. These are before the exile. Then we get prophets who are exilic prophets like Daniel. And then we get prophets that are post-exilic prophets, because all the prophets are saying is, hey, if you don't shape up, God's going to let bad things happen to you. That's all pre-exilic. And then in the exile, the prophets are saying, stay faithful to God. God has not left us. God is here with us. God is cleansing us. Do you remember Isaiah has this whole great story and vision of God coming and touching him with a hot coal, not to burn him, but to cleanse him. And Isaiah Isaiah takes that vision, and he expands that vision to the entirety of Israel, that Israel essentially has to be cut down and burned by fire in order to allow the seed to sprout and be regrown, reborn into the kind of kingdom God wishes us to be. That entire story is all about why God let the Babylonians overwhelm the Israelites and then, when they come out of that cleansing experience of the exile, they are able to be reborn into something new and better. And so, then you've got prophets of that period that affirm remaining faithful to God and His covenant. And so, now just the final little sixth section, because I want to at least for you to at least know that it exists. The very last paragraph, I mean, literally, the last four verses of 2 Kings 25 jumps into the future. It jumps 40 years into the exile. Exile was 70 years, so this is like in the middle of the exile. And it tells a super weird story of a man named Jehoiakim, who would have been king had they been back in the southern kingdom. So he's a line of David. Jehoiachin is taken out of prison by the king of Babylon and given a really nice seat at the Babylonian king's table. And he does not go back to prison. He remains at the king's, of Babylon's table, eating well and cared for the rest of his life. That's it, that's all the little nugget says. And so what the heck is that? It is essentially this tiny little moment of hope that even in the exile, God is still present. That even in the exile, The promise made to Abraham and Moses and David still exists and that when they are out, when the exile is over, they can rebuild and become the kingdom God promised that they would be. And then of course, wrapped up in all of this with all the prophets is that big capital P promise of the messianic king who is to come. And so it is all of that prophetic stuff not only from First and 2 Kings, but from the prophetic books themselves, that then prefigure the promise that then we recognize fulfilled in Jesus. And so, there it is, friends. That's all the way through 2 Kings. Just a quick note for next year. This is our last class this year, so please don't come next week thinking that we're going to have class um, Next year, we are, by request, going to be doing the Gospel of John. We will have a normal little thin book commentary of the Gospel of John that we'll be using throughout the study next school year. But I've had many people ask what could they read or prepare for over the summer for next year's study. And so I believe Bob already emailed this link out, but so check your emails. If you don't get an email, see her after the class and we'll get you on the email list. But I have recommended the second edition, it's a thick book, called Four Portraits, One Jesus. What I want you to know about this book is that it's available many different places. Amazon's actually not exactly the easiest place to get this. Christianitybook.com and other places you can find it easier. Um, this book is a textbook. This is not a narrative book. And what by that, what I mean is you can just jump around. You can just Read one chapter over here, read one chapter over there. You don't need to like read the whole thing all the way through. I mean, knock yourself out if you want to, but you can. It talks about what the Gospels are, their historic context and their purpose. It goes through the portrait in each of the four Gospels. I like describing the Gospels as portraits because essentially what that means is if you were to gather four artists together, and ask them to paint you, or your family, or your dog, or something like that. You're gonna get four different perspectives. If I were to have four different artists paint me, I would look very different in all four of those portraits, but they would all be paintings of me, portraits of me. And so essentially what we have, and the way that I'll use, I'll describe them next year, is that each gospel's a different portrait. We're going to look specifically at the way John painted the story of Jesus in his portrait. But it's always important that we can't just take one gospel alone. We take them all together to get this nice three-dimensional perspective of Jesus. And that's a great book to look at. So I thank you all for being here this year. And I look forward to getting together with you again in September. Have a great summer.